What is grace? Grace is community. Grace is passion. Grace is for everyone. Today we draw near to the close of our summer series on Moses. We've journeyed from Moses' birth, exile, return to Egypt, and crossing the Red Sea to the mountain of God. Uh, We often think of these commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments that we spoke about last week, as rules that tell us what to do and not to do. But really it's about a covenant. God created boundaries for his people to help guide us toward a better life in connection with God. These laws, then, are ultimately all about love. How can we love God and love our neighbors? That's what Jesus reminds us of when he describes what is the most important commandment. The law is love, period. And now we look at the, the events right after Moses receives the law on God's mountain. There were actually ten entire chapters of law, ranging from violence and justice to the tabernacle and the Art of the Covenant, uh, Ark of the Covenant. At the very end uh, of it, Moses comes down from the mountain with this covenant written on two tablets of stone. Uh, and what do you imagine will happen next? If you don't know the story, I bet you couldn't guess. Uh, Carol is going to read for us today. Uh, Kathy was supposed to read, but she's taken ill, so we invite you to pray for her. Uh, But we're going to read now from Exodus 32, where the people of God, who have just established their covenant with God, do exactly the opposite of what is described in the covenant. Let's hear about this awful betrayal in two parts. The first is Exodus 32, 1 through 6, and the second is verses 15 through 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come make gods for us. Who shall go before us? As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Aaron said to them, Take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings from their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, formed it in a mold, and cast an image of a calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made the proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a festival to the Lord. They rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought sacrifices of well-being. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to revel. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, carrying the two tablets of the covenant in his hands, tablets that were written on both sides, written on the front and the back. The tablets were the works of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved upon the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound made by victors or the sound made by losers. It is the sound of revelers that I hear. As soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot and he threw the tablets from his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made, burned it with fire, ground it to a powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. 
Moses said to Aaron, what did the people do when you do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, do not let the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are bent on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us as this for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, whatever has gold, take it off. So that they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. When Moses saw the people were running wild, for Aaron had not had let them run wild to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood at the gate of the camp and said, who is on the side of the Lord? Come to me, and all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And from Matthew 21, 28 through 31, Jesus asks, What do you think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. He answered, I will not. But later he changed his mind and went. The father went to the second and said the same, and he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, make us an inclusive community, passionately following after Jesus Christ. Change our hearts and change our minds that we may more faithfully seek you and your will rather than our own. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My wife, Emily, is a master when it comes to sewing and knitting. She can make incredible pieces with ease. Her only weakness is that she always wants to do something new. So if she is wearing a dress that looks really great and you'd like one too, you're out of luck. She only makes one, and she's wearing it. Uh, There is one other challenge she has faced when it comes to making clothes, of course. Uh, She started out with low-end sewing machines, which were fine at the beginning. As she grew in skill, she needed a better one, though. She's had some borrowed ones and specialized machines, but she really needed one excellent machine to take her craft to the next level. She didn't want to buy a brand new machine that would last just a few years and then break, so she went the classic route. She decided she would find someone's older machine that they didn't need anymore and give it a second life. That's when she invited me along for a ride into upstate New York. Uh, This was a few years ago, so we actually had to hire a babysitter so we could get away for a few hours and buy her a sewing machine. What a wild stage of life that was. Uh, When we arrived, uh, the current owner was very kind. She invited us into her home and into her sewing room. The machine was indeed a classic. It was owned by her mother, and she never had the skills to use it herself. Uh, Emily asked if she could sit down with it and try it out, and the woman graciously agreed. As soon as Emily sat down, she was clearly in her element. Her face was practically glowing in the moment. She worked for a couple of minutes testing things out and realized there was something wrong. A certain function just wasn't working right. She opened up the machine, 
and tinkered for a minute. She found the internal part that was off and thought maybe she could bend it into the right position. And she tried and it didn't work. And then she asked me to have a go at it. And I tried but couldn't get it. So Emily took one last crack at it. We don't quite remember what happened, but it definitely involved a screw and a piece of metal that snapped off. Uh, in trying to fix the machine, it broke so badly that it wouldn't work at all and could not be repaired. Emily was thoroughly embarrassed. She had come to purchase a classic sewing machine, keeping a good machine in use, and instead made it so no one ever could use that machine. We offered our apologies, and the machine owner was again very gracious about the whole thing, but we certainly didn't linger. We got out of there pretty quick. Emily did not buy the machine and did not have any further contact with the owner. That was the end of a bad encounter leading to a very broken machine. I know if Emily could, she would have fixed that machine. It wasn't about the money, it was about doing the right thing and fixing what was broken. And often that's our natural reaction. We see something broken and we want to fix it. But some things seem to be so broken they cannot be fixed. Have you ever had something like that in your life? Maybe a relationship with a, a family member or a friend. Maybe it's something in your career or a mental health concern. All kinds of things can be broken, and whether they can be fixed, whether there is a way forward or not, is not always obvious. I was at Starbucks this week writing my sermon, and I overheard a, a couple of people talking. The young lady was in a tough spot. She loves her boyfriend very much, but he was taking a step back. He wanted space from her, and she wanted to call him every day to try and fix the relationship. There was an older man who knew her and advised her to give her some space. He told her, the more you push, the more he will resist. And maybe, maybe that's the right answer. But I wonder if maybe she should just drop this guy who's back and forth and can't make a commitment. Maybe that's the right thing to do too. The relationship might be broken forever and she just doesn't know it yet. Sometimes it's not clear how to respond to broken things. In Exodus, something is seriously broken. We saw Moses receive the Ten Commandments, and then when he came down from the mountain, he was confronted with the Israelites, the people of God, worshiping the golden calf. When he sees it, he breaks the Ten Commandments. Brokenness on top of brokenness. Last week I made the point that the Ten Commandments were not so much about a law or a rule that people had to follow, but about a covenant between God and these people. God has just established this covenant, and at one point Israel had agreed to it. Back in Exodus 24, Moses explained the words of the Lord, and they said, All the words of the Lord we will do. But here's what happened. Moses went back up the mountain, and he took Joshua with him, Moses told them, wait here, and if there are any issues, any disputes, you can go to Aaron and Hur. That's the brother of Moses and the other guy that helped hold up Moses' arms in Exodus 17. These are the other trusted leaders of this group. But when Moses goes up the mountain, he is up there for 40 days, and the people, they get nervous. They're worried that maybe Moses 
is dead. Their leader who took them from Egypt to this foreign place, a place where Moses himself spent 40 years living. He's the one guy who knows his way around this place, and if he dies, now what? So they are worried, and they aren't sure what to do. Now, we might judge Aaron pretty harshly for his behavior. He is the future priest. He's in charge, and within just a few weeks, he makes a gold calf and tells the people to worship it. Seems awful, doesn't it? But there is likely more to the story here. Remember that there were two people in charge, Aaron and her? Her, though, is never heard from again in the rest of the Bible. Many people believe that Israel is so upset with Moses' disappearance that they essentially riot and murder her. If that's true, that Aaron really has no choice here, well, making a god or, or you die too makes a little more sense, right? Then when he says to collect the gold to make this false idol, there's something else going on. He says to rip out the gold from your, your ears, your necks, and your noses. He wants them to experience a little pain, to rethink what they're doing. But they cannot be persuaded. They demand a false idol, and Aaron provides it. There's one more idea that I think is important for us to know in this story. This golden calf isn't quite meant to be a god of Israel. They weren't that primitive. The idea was that God would use the created idol, here a golden calf, not to replace God, but as a footstool for God. That means their God wasn't the gold calf. Their God would inhabit the space above the creature. Right? It's as though God were riding on the bull. This isn't just a guess either. Later, Moses makes a, a tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But the Ark is called literally the footstool of God. God's presence was there, and he lived above the Ark of the Covenant. So Aaron's not really the bad guy misleading the people here. It's these people who are scared and anxious, worried that their leader who kept them connected with God is simply gone. So they make this golden calf, and they say they're having a celebration of God. The calf is meant to connect with them with the one true God here. So the real problem here is not that they are in outright rebellion. They haven't said, we reject God, let's go find a new one. No, they are still celebrating the Lord. They are so close to doing the right thing, but they miss the main point. Moses sees this. He comes down from the mountain, realizes that they are trying to do this thing on their own, running ahead of God without his direction, almost immediately breaking the covenant they had earlier agreed to. And he seems mad. He takes the stones with the Ten Commandments on them, and he breaks them. Now, they might have been violating the first commandment uh, to have no other gods before the Lord, although the celebration is for the Lord. They make this golden calf an idol, violating the second commandment, although it may have simply been the footstool of God. And then the third commandment is to not take the Lord's name in vain. Yet Aaron says, this is your God. All the commandments about what it means to love God well, and they have bent and broken the rules. 
It's no wonder Moses broke the stones representing the covenant between God and Israel. I imagine for most people, we would say we love God. We might point to others who say they don't believe in God or question who God is or practice a different world religion, and we say, look, they don't love God. They worship a false idol. But really, this story isn't as much about people who practice a different kind of religion as it is about people who try to follow God and just barely miss the mark. It can be so easy for our religion to be so close, but ultimately to fail to love God the right way. Years ago, there was a survey of churches measuring their different characteristics, and Methodists got a little bit of a reputation from it. Uh, In New Jersey, most of our churches had the same flaw. We lacked what was called passionate spirituality. Of all the things to be missing in a church, from good leadership to healthy small groups, that's the one that really hurts. What good is our religion if we aren't passionate about it? What good is our faith if we aren't living committed, devoted lives? People want to see that we are enthusiastic about God, but too often what we show is a level of apathy. We are fine with things just the way they are, with no need to change, no need to get too excited. I think that is a stab in the heart of God. That is saying one thing and doing another. It's like saying, yes, we believe, but who cares because it doesn't mean anything in our heart anyways. Often you'll hear people say, actions speak louder than words, and I agree. Just because we say something doesn't mean we believe it. Our actions confirm our belief. But there's actually another layer at work that we see in this scripture. When we take the right action, but our heart is not in the right place, our action is not right. Look at how close what Israel does is to what God instructs through Moses. They have an altar to make sacrifices to God. Moses would later tell them to do exactly this at the tabernacle. They have a festival. Moses would tell them to have seven festivals. They worship God and remember God's deliverance. Moses says to do exactly that in the Passover. The point is not to say the right words or to have the right form of religion. God wants our hearts. In Isaiah 29, God laments, they draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. Joel 2 has one of my favorite verses that says, rend your hearts and not your garments. The right action when you were sad and repenting was to rip your clothes. You would tear it to show how serious you were in your repentance. It is the right action But God says, no, I don't want your garments torn. I want your heart turned toward me. Choose me. Love me. That's what matters. Jesus would say the same thing. I started with a verse about Jesus saying, 
who did the right thing, the one who said no and then later did it, or the one who said yes and then didn't do it, the answer is the one who eventually did the right thing despite what they said. So our actions matter, yes, but Jesus later said to the religious leaders, you hypocrites, you washed the outside of the cup but ignored the greed and self-indulgence inside it. He said they were whitewashed tombs looking nice and honorable on the outside, but dead on the inside. He was saying the heart has got to be the priority. Doing the right thing, looking good on the outside, is not enough. The heart must align with our right actions. There was a man who took his elderly father out to lunch after they got their food. The son got on his phone and scrolled through it the whole time. He completely ignored his father the rest of the meal. It's the right action, taking his father to lunch, but done with the wrong heart. Right action matters, but even more important is a right heart. So how do we get there? How do we make the heart right and have that kind of passionate spirituality that God desires from us? I know there is no magic formula, but here are a few thoughts. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What are you feeding into your life? Is it good, inspirational, focused on growth and maturity? Or are you focused on feeling good, on entertainment? Another step, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Are you focused on what you want, on your desires, or are you focused on others? Jesus says to sacrifice for the good of the world. These are some of the things that move us toward a life of passionate spirituality where love for God is the key value in our lives. Let me end with this. I've always loved American history, and it are some incredible stories, oftentimes examples of how we can live our lives with the right kind of love at work in them. I just heard this story this week. It involves Thomas Nelson, who was the governor of Virginia and one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. He was in pursuit of General Cornwallis, who was the commander of the British Army. Cornwallis was planning on meeting up with British ships in the Chesapeake Bay for reinforcements, but they were cut off in Yorktown. Thomas Nelson knew Yorktown very well because he lived there. In fact, he knew it so well he was certain of exactly where General Cornwallis would be set up in the city. He gathered his men together, and he pointed to a beautiful brick building. He said, General Cornwallis has almost certainly set up the British headquarters inside there. It is the best home in the city. I know this because it is my home. Then he told the soldiers to line up the cannons and fire at his own house. He said he'll give a thousand bucks to any man who hit his home. The story goes that the very first cannonball sailed through his dining room window and destroyed the table where the British officers were eating. 
Thomas Nelson celebrated right along with the other soldiers as his own home was destroyed. Only a few days later, the British would surrender and America would win the, the Revolutionary War. That is a man who was passionate about winning the war, so passionate he was willing to sacrifice his beautiful home to win. Imagine what our lives could be like with that kind of passion for God. We would be in daily prayer. We would be reading the scriptures all the time. We would be examining our lives, teasing out our motives so that we would be living with a heart in line with God's desire for our lives. We might be so passionate about our faith, we might even shout an amen during a sermon. Maybe that's a little too much to ask, but I wouldn't be mad if it happened next week, folks. When our passion is for Jesus Christ, our lives will look different. We will be committed not just to fixing things that are broken in our lives, but to daily recommitting every part of our lives, our work, our family, even the homes we live in, all to the glory of God. If we do that, we'll know without a doubt that we are truly, genuinely, and passionately on the Lord's side. Amen? Amen. For everything happening at Grace, check out our website at gumc.org.